Hello, welcome to episode 25 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, Rod Murray guiding proceedings for what is a special emergency recording. In these uncertain times, it's difficult to look ahead, and with the world of golf turned upside down by the cancellation of pretty much all professional tournament play, it's no surprise that those in the game have begun to indulge in an awful lot of looking back to fill the void. That's a good thing because the history of the game is important and it's important because of the people who made it. If the Masters were going ahead as scheduled in two weeks' time, it would have been the 40th anniversary of one of the most significant tournaments in recent history, Seve Ballesteros's first green jacket. Just mentioning the name Seve stirs something in golfers and that's certainly true for my three special guests today whose sole job is to talk about the Spanish genius whose impact on the game is still felt today. So enough about me and enough from me. Let's meet today's panel. I'll start in the north of England where we find one of the best-known bagmen in the game and one who had a very special relationship with Seve. It's a big hello to Billy Foster. Billy, I know that you're on quarantine there like most of us around the world or self-isolation, so thanks for joining us, although you probably didn't have much else to do, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I checked my data like I told uh, Tony earlier today and uh, there wasn't a lot going on, to be quite honest, so I figured... I may as well talk some shit with you lads down under. Yeah, you had, a, you had a free hour or two to spare, which has been fantastic. <laughs> Staying in the normal... What time did bacon sandwiches come out? Because I can tell stories till breakfast tomorrow if you want. Well, we might we might just let you, because I think when, when Clates mentioned on Twitter that we might do this, they got quite the reaction, a lot of people begging to hear it. So uh, hold fire there. There's plenty of time for you to, uh, to tell us spits and pieces. Staying in the Northern Hemisphere, a voice and a giggle that'll be recognisable to anybody who's watched coverage of the European Tour in the last, oh, I'm not sure how long. But more importantly, a 25-time tournament winner, six of those on the European Tour, where he was a stalwart during the 80s and 90s, which was Seve's time. Tony Johnston. Hello, Tony. Did you have to check your diary to, uh, before you said yes to this commitment? Uh, no, unlike Billy, uh, I've got nothing lined up uh, except boredom, boredom, and more boredom. Thank goodness for social media. I think it's going to keep us all alive, but really looking forward to this chat about uh, a man that we all truly, truly loved. Yeah, it's an interesting social experiment, isn't it? No professional golf and only social media to keep us going. We'll see where we end up in a few weeks' time. It's been we've all been playing nice so far, but we'll uh, we'll find out how that ends. Finally, from my hemisphere, self isolating as we know, next door to St Andrews Beach Golf Course, is a former player turned architect, commentator, and columnist, Mike Clayton. Clates, are you still able to get on St Andrews Beach down there? We're not quite in lockdown here in Australia, but boy, we're not far off, and one imagines that we probably will be soon. Yeah, well, it's still open. There have been quite a bunch of golf clubs that have shut in the last couple of days. So, Right, let's start with memories of the first time you heard or heard of or met Seve. I'll come to you first for this, Billy, because I assume the relationship between player and caddy is somewhat different to the one between players themselves. When did you encounter Seve or even just hear Seve's name or reputation for the first time? Can you remember? Uh, to be quite honest, <clears throat> you know, I've been to every Open Championship since 1975 at Garnoosti when... Um, Jack Newton lost in a playoff to Tom Watson. I've not missed one Open Championship since. So as a young boy, you know, from being 9, 10, 11 years old, you know, Seve was, to me, you know, the Pipe Piper. And, you know, wherever he went, he was my boyhood hero, which to many of us, you know, from the 40s to the 70s, he would be all our, our heroes, I guess. So, you know, he, um, he meant a lot to me from a very early age. So to think that, you know, a shit kicker from Keithley, West Yorkshire, could spend five years of his life watching an absolute miraculous genius at work was uh, very humbling, to say the least. Yeah. I guess most of us probably know the answer to this, but I'll ask you, what what was the appeal as a fan? Long before you came to work for and with Seve, what was the appeal to you or the attraction as a, as a young fan? 
Uh, just shot making skills that uh, no other player possessed, and uh, and to this day, and probably till the end of time, because the technology and the ball doesn't allow it anymore. He's the most miraculous shot maker that will ever live. So he, he attracted it. He bashed it all over the golf course. Had to pay to get back in the golf course six times around, and you know it was all over the park. And just his, his miraculous skills to to get things back in play and on the green was uh, inspiring and great fun to watch. Hit it, find it, and hit it again. Tony Johnson, I'll come to you. I remember when you, Clates, and I spoke many years ago on a State of the Game episode, you told the story of the first time you encountered Greg Norman, which was a ripper, and we might get that from you a bit later. What do you recall about your first, be it seeing Seve, encountering him, watching him play, or just hearing about him or his reputation? Uh, well, you know, he, he, he came on the scene, that, well, it was 76 Open, um, burst on the scene as this young 18-year-old, I think he was, um, so, you know, when I came over to Europe in 1980, I had known about this young Spaniard for a couple of years and was really looking forward to meeting him. And it was no disappointment. You know, Sebi was, uh, it was just some, some special charisma about the guy. And I've always said there's two people I've met that have just given me an absolute buzz up my arm when I've shaken their hand. And one was Sebi and the other was uh, Nelson Mandela. It was just some kind of electricity that you couldn't, you just couldn't put your finger on the charisma uh, and, you know, he was a man of the people, Sevi, as the other guys will, will vouch for. He was always happy to have a chat and a laugh. And uh, to this day, he's still the only professional golfer that I ever went out on a golf course to watch after I turned pro. And that was, with, uh, that was him in 1980 in uh, Scandinavia, the Scandinavian Open. A good friend of mine, David Stratton, and I were sharing together in our rookie year. And we went out to watch Sevi. It was just he was so special, it was just almost unimaginable. I reckon I've heard a bunch of golf pros say that, and it is almost unheard of, isn't it, Tony? Golf pros just don't go and watch other golf pros, but Seve was very special in that way. Yes, you know, you, you'd play in the morning, and, you know, you're a golf pro. That's your job. You go and practice, or you go and have a sleep, or you go and go to the gym, or you do something. But nobody ever goes out, back, on, out back out onto the golf course to watch another player, unless it's your best buddy, maybe, you know, and he's got the chance of winning a tournament. But, uh, You'd go out there and there'd be a bunch of players out there just trying to watch Seve and trying to learn from him and see why this guy was so magical. And uh, none of us could ever emulate it. None of us could understand why he was so brilliant. He was just the most naturally gifted genius of all time, as simple as that. I wonder if uh, I wonder if he knew so the answers to some of those questions, Tony. You might come to that a little bit later. Clates, what's your first recollection of Seve? Well, I remember reading his name in 75 was the first year he played in Europe. Well, he played a bit at the end of 74, but so I um, I could recognise his name. So, so when he played well in 76 at Birkdale, I, I knew who he was and it wasn't as big a surprise perhaps for us as it was for, you know, the general golf fan who hadn't heard of him. But um, he first played here in 1978 at Royal Melbourne and I was going to caddy for him. He had a manager down here, Jimmy Carter, who was Ed Barner's agent, and he'd set up for me to caddy for him at Royal Melbourne, and I, I had an exam on the Wednesday of the, which is the Pro-Am, so I couldn't do it, which was to my eternal regret. I should have just skipped the exam and failed the year, but anyway, um, I watched him play pretty much every hole at Royal Melbourne that year. It was incredible, because that was the, Royal Melbourne was the perfect course for him, like Augusta, same architect. And it was the perfect course. It gave him space to play and a real chance to express his genius around the greens and the shots into the green. And he wasn't so constrained off the tee with the driver, so he drove the ball beautifully. And it was a it was a masterclass, really. And so I was a fan from then on, really. 
Is it tough as a fellow competitor, Tony, to have that relationship where you're kind of in awe of this guy, but kind of your job to try to beat him as well? That's a weird thing, isn't it? And unique, I think, perhaps to Sevilla, maybe to Tiger and maybe Jack Nicholas. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, you went out there, obviously you wanted to beat him. And, you know, you never got on the tee thinking, I can't beat this guy because then you might as well just pack your bags and go home. But, uh, you know, you were aware subconsciously that if Sevi put on a show, uh, he was going to wipe the floor with you, no matter how well you played. He was he was that special. And uh, yeah, there, was, there was something about the man, you know. It was all of the players in Europe. It was like man love. We Every single player in Europe, Loved Sevi. Uh, you know, he was our Sevi. He was our tour. And when he walked in the room, you know, the, the whole player's lounge would just come to a halt as Sevi walked in because there's our man. And, and you know, the, the best was the wives' reactions. I said that on Twitter the other day. When, the, when he walked in, the wives, you know, the jaws went slack and the knees went all rubbery. And uh, I won't mention his name, but <laughs> I got a message from one of my buddies who uh, used to work at Callaway when they signed Sevi. He walked into the, the room and all the staff, all the girls stood up and started clapping. And one of the other guys at Callaway said to him, you might have to edit this, said to him, can you hear that? He said, no, what, what, hear what? He said, the sound of all the knickers hitting the floor. <laughs> uh, that's Arnold Palmer-esque, isn't it? And you only got to look at photos of, even photos of the two of them show that energy, don't they? Billy, do you remember your first conversation with Sophie when you first met him? How did you come to work for him? Did you approach him? Did he approach you? How did that work? No, I was working for Gordon Brown Jr., bless him, um, uh, in 1990. Uh, and I just accepted a job as an assistant pro myself. And I told Gordon I was going to give him six weeks' notice and at the end of the season to find another caddy. And we was playing with Seve and David Fiat at the German Masters in Stuttgart when some steps behind me came up uh, and asked me what I was doing next season. And I just said I was retiring from caddying and I couldn't accept a job as an assistant pro and um, he just said no no you too young to retire eh? and I look for the caddy for next season eh? <laughs> my brother were working for him and um, I just blanked him and walked on <laughs> and that was on the second hole and I went to my hotel that night and I tossed and turned all night thinking you are some prick <laughs> you, you basically you boiled heroes asked you to work for him and you hadn't even given an answer so I ran to the course the next day and he just teed off so I followed him up the first hole, and as I came off the first green, I gave him a piece of paper with my name and address on, obviously, because there was no mobile phones or internet or anything stupid like that in them days. And uh, two weeks later, uh, I received a, a headed letter, Severiano Barcia Sorta, with all these conditions. I'm actually looking at it at my office desk. It's framed on the wall. I'm writing to you regarding for a conversation during the German Masters for you to carry for me next year. I've been watching you for a little bit, and I like your attitude as a caddy. Now let me tell you my conditions. And then he just says, the, just, the next three paragraphs, he just, you can't do this, you can't do that. The player's always right. There'll be no arguing, all this and that. Just a complete bollock in the second half of the letter. Happy Christmas, Sevi Ballesteros. So he put you right in your box straight away. <laughs> You haven't even started working for him yet. You've already, you've already received yeah. your first... Your put first the fear of God in you just through a letter. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think he saw in you, Billy? What do you think it was about you that... I know you said there he sort of likes your attitude, but having worked with him and been close to him and got to know him personally as well, what do you think when you reflect back? What was it about you? Um, I guess I was fairly presentable, uh, clean-cut young lad. That uh, You know, I, I worked hard. I put in my homework at the start of a week. I was out there for five or six hours walking around with a... Yard is really always used, used to draw my own yardage book, which not many people did. Um, 
working on uh, our half decent at reading greens, I guess. And uh, I don't know, he just took a shine to me and asked me. So I'm no better than you know hundred other caddies out there. I just uh, he took a shine to me for some reason and uh, had a great best five years in my caddying career for sure. Uh, Rod, can I just uh, can I interject there? Because at any, ta- at any stage, any of you can interject. Go for it, Tony. It, it's quite hard to ask a man uh, why he was different, and I would like to add to that. I think Billy is unquestionably one of the best caddies that's ever been out there. Uh, you know, he's not he's not uh, shy to speak his mind. He'll stand his ground. He's just said he wasn't a bad reader of greens. I can tell you he's probably one of the best that ever lived. And uh, Sevi was no fool. I think he saw all of these things. He saw the fact that uh, Billy was diligent. Billy, I hope your head hasn't exploded outside no, the confines of your, of your study. Checks, checks in the post, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> and uh, basically, you know, it, Billy's been highly regarded and always great fun. We've, we've always had a lot of laughs. Um, and, you know, I could understand exactly why Seti asked to get him on the bag, as a lot of players have over the years. I actually asked him once upon a time. He's probably forgotten because I was a horrendous reader of Greens. And I said, Billy, listen, I could do with some help. You know, if you're not doing anything for a couple of weeks, would you fancy a stint on the bag? Unfortunately, I think he was busy with Darren Clark in those days. And he was too polite to say, listen, I don't really work for choppers. But, I'll tell you uh, what, Tony. I don't know if you remember, but when I first started caddying in 1983, I worked for a guy called Jesus Lopez. Yeah. And then uh, I ended up going to Portugal on a six-weeks holiday with a friend of mine and ended yeah. up getting Hugh Bayoki's job from South Africa. And the reason mm. I got it is because I carried for Tony Johnson in the 1983 Portuguese Open at Troyer. <laughs> you not remember that, CJ? <laughs> I do remember that. I thought you'd forgotten. I thought it was a distant memory, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could lose the head with the best of them, mate. Brilliant. Great fun. <laughs> but there's two, yeah, like you said, there's two things out there. You have to have a great sense of humour. And, you know, there's, a, there's times that you have to speak up and there's times that you, as a caddy, you know when to just shut up. And just yeah. give him a couple of minutes. But, you know, Seve with Seve, you know, the reason I got on with him, if you lasted five holes with Seve, you were doing well. So five years, <laughs> it's probably because I fought fire with fire and didn't take any, you know, too much grief off him. And I fought back and showed a, you know, a steely side myself. So I got on with him fantastically. I wonder yeah. about the, the importance of that, Clates, the caddy that's not the yes man for the truly gifted. And, and, and we saw it, I think, with Steve Williams and Tiger, where I think. Steve was one of the few people who didn't just agree with everything the Tiger said. So he was prepared to have you say, like Billy saying with Sevy, and I wonder whether the player recognises that and understands the importance of that, Clates. Yeah, well, Sevy was – our generation was probably the first generation of players who asked Caddy questions. I mean, Peter Thompson and Nicholas never asked a Caddy a thing. So, you know, perhaps a little before us, but Sevy would have, was really probably the first generation of players who put a reliance on Caddies. And Caddies were – probably getting better by then. I mean, there were some tremendous caddies out in Europe in the 80s. But, you know, I wonder, Billy, do you think that's true, that, you know, the generations past didn't ask caddies much? But... No, I mean, uh, I mean, you look at the, the, the characters that were out there, you know, when you were playing out there in the, the mid-80s and so on. You know, and I was one of the probably the first wave of new caddies as such that really came on tour because you played for nothing. I remember Tony... He finished seventh at that Portuguese Open and won a thousand pounds. You know, I got five percent, so I got fifty fifty pounds. And you've got to make your own way to Portugal. If Caddy couldn't afford to get on an aeroplane, you'd be like two days on a train, get down there, pay your own hotels, your mm. food. I mean, fifty quid wouldn't even pay your beer money, like you know. And that's why there were no caddies out there. It was basically rough old tramps. You know, there were some undesirables out there caddying. <laughs> 
well, there was one the Tony and Clerks. I yeah. there was some yeah. rough yeah, characters out there, and uh, yes, you know, I was probably one of the first wave of probably, dare I say, respectable caddies that really first started caddying. So it was it was a weird, weird place out there in the at the start for sure. Yeah. Why did you do it just out of interest, then, Billy? Sounds like a I did it. I did it to, to, to travel Europe for two years, uh, get some experience of travelling and just to learn more about the game myself to make my own game better. I knew I wasn't going to make a bean, but it was just to, you know, have a bit of fun, do a bit of travelling, learn learn from the uh, the best players in, in Europe. So that's all I did it for. And, uh, you know, 38 years later, and I'm still on the magic roundabout. I was going to say, look at you now. Who would have thought? <laughs> and that that's basically because, I, you know, I, I, I should, well, I've got a, a picture in my office here with Seve winning his first tournament with me caddying for him at the Chinuchi Crowns in Japan and, I should really get down on my hands and knees and bow to him every morning because whatever I've got is the five years, the experience and the respect that I gained from working for that man has, has made me more right, you know, more successful than I thought my life was ever going to be. So I owe the man a lot. It wasn't a smooth relationship at all times, was it, Billy? Oh, no, it was Jekyll and Hyde, You know, I mean, when I first started caddying for him, I mean, if I'm not joking, yeah, I could probably beat him myself. You know, the first few weeks he was... Shooting 83s, 81s, 82s, 79s, but he would walk over broken glass to try his best to, to break 80. He never wanted to shoot 80. And in, and in Mallorca, I asked him after 27 holes, he was 154th in, in a 154 man field. And after nine holes, the second round, I said, Seve, come on, let's go in. I couldn't see him suffer anymore. He was in tears, biting his grips, the pure frustration punching himself and I mean proper fisting himself like proper cracks drawing blood Jesus. I said Seve you're killing so let's get in here mate and he said no no Billy we are professionals we carry on till the end eh? you're a son of my bitch so let's go you know, and he, he made sure he finished them 36 holes alright he finished DFL but he had to he had to be the ultimate professional he was the ultimate warrior the desire the passion that you know and the hatred that he had for other players especially in Ryder Cups you know that man was one of the last great characters that's extraordinary. So, Billy, so, so Billy yeah. in 1991, so you came for him. I mean, I, I guess you were there over the what the Ryder Cup in '95. But how far past his best was he then, really? Because he almost won the Open that year that Finchie won. He, you yeah. know, he looked like you know he, he looked like he was going to win, and he unbelievably he, made, he, he putted really poorly the last round at Birkdale when Finchie won. You know, if he'd yeah. put his normal self, he could have won it, but. Like I was saying, you know, when I first started caddying the first few weeks, honestly, he played like me, and I'm shy. But we, get, we went to the uh, Chinuchi Crowns in Japan, and he won the tournament from nowhere. And his next four tournaments were win, got beaten a seven-all playoff at the Spanish Open by Eduardo Romero, win PGA Championship at Wentworth, win British Masters at Warburn. So he basically went four, four first place in the next month. But that That's was right. funny. Once he, yeah. once he got a feeling... He was unbeatable. That's right. He made that long putt to beat Roger McKay in Japan, right? He did, yes. He did, yeah. I remember that. And, yeah. um, you know, and he went he on to win the money list that year. Uh, it was incredible. And then 1992, he came out. He won two of the first three tournaments in Dubai and Mallorca. Then played like me again for the rest of the season. It was incredible. His, his highs were brilliant and his lows were just absolute dirt. <laughs> so was his game going by then, do you think? Well, it was his back. And, yeah. and you, you, the thing that in the end, you know, he, don't get me wrong, he came back the year after he won the German Masters on the Benson Edges International. He was playing some good stuff uh, and he had Mac O'Grady uh, teaching him, who's 
you know, a, a genius himself, you know. Um, and it was a weird relationship, but um, he, he's, uh, you know, like I say, you know, the, the way that he, he turned his game up and down, it, it was incredible, the highs and lows, you know, the proverbial roller coaster of playing brilliant and then just absolutely terrible. It was, it was crazy. Because Manuel told me once, his brother, he said, Seve played his best golf when he was 15 and 16. He said he was yeah. unbelievable when he was a kid. He said you couldn't yeah. believe how good he was. You know my opinion? Um, I really feel as though his back was a big issue, don't get me wrong, but Seve went away from being the most naturally gifted golfer, just saw the shot, felt it and hit it. I need more coaches and, mm. you know, your local bus company, like, you know, yeah. You know, anybody that walked down the range had to give him a lesson and he just got wrapped up in that much technique and thinking about his swing and positions. And I think that was through watching the success of Nick Faldo. Yeah. Thought he could tie and send in elastic bands and beach balls and everything. And he just, he lost his natural feeling and got too much wrapped up in technique. And he finished him. It's interesting. Because I actually put a sign on the range in Belgium one year when he'd asked every man his dog. I went in one of the trailers behind the range and got this big sign and drew up, no more lessons today, please, love Billy, kiss, kiss. <laughs> and I placed it behind Seve's bag, and all the players that walked past just looked and walked off. And then eventually Seve saw it after about half an hour and completely lost the edge. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was too much. That's uh, that's right. And all of them would have had the right intentions, Billy. They all wanted Seve Absolute, to be Seve, didn't they? I only had his, only ever have your player's best interests at heart, and he was just getting overcoached, and too many people trying to help and just making the situation worse. Mm. What's that about? Um, oh, sorry, so, well, sorry, right. Um, Peter Thompson told me once. Well, you know, Tomo was a he was a clever bloke, very in terms of God. He said Seve will be in trouble when he learns to speak better English. Yeah, <laughs> and the implication was he'll start listening to people about his golf swing. And that was very early on, and of course he spoke great English and played great golf. So that wasn't entirely true in you know in the short term, but you know, in the long term, if he'd never learned a word of English, he you know as Billy thinks he might have been better because he wouldn't have listened to these blokes telling him what to do because he had an incredible mm. instinct for the game. You know, I, I look at him because I honestly, I, he was like a brother to me for five years, and to watch the last six, seven, eight, ten years or whatever it was of his career, it was so sad to to see a man that was so sad because everything in his life was for golf. He wanted to play golf 24-7 and he knew he couldn't compete anymore and he only played a couple of senior events before he knocked it on the head because he was just basically embarrassing himself and it it destroyed him as a person. Mm. Sad to see. You know, and if I could have gone to Spain and got him on my shoulders... And put him on my back and walked him from Spain to St Andrews. Uh, I think it was in the year 2010 uh, for the the Addis Champions Challenge uh, and played the first, the second, the 17th, and 18th. He never got the send off and walking over the bridge and the adulation of the British public that he deserved, you know. And had I carried him all the way if I could have done, but the guy was too poorly. Very very sad finish. Wasn't it the doctors who told him not to go? To that, yeah, I think uh, generally, I think uh, I think Ernie Els offered to send his private jet down to uh, Santander to pick him up and bring him, but he, yeah, he took the doctor's um, advice and, and stayed at home. And uh, you know, I think if he knew what was coming, he'd have probably been seven, been seven. Oh, no, I'm, I'm going anyway. I ain't your son of my bitch. I'm going. You know, here he go. <laughs> he was the most stubborn man I've met in my 38 years of caddy. Now, speaking of stubborn, Billy, tell us about. 
maybe the greatest shot he hit. Perhaps, perhaps not, but behind the wall in Switzerland, that was a pretty stubborn. Yeah, bit I mean, of... undoubtedly. I mean, it is it is undoubtedly the best golf shot I've ever seen in my life. You know, I mean, it was it was uh, Cromontana in Switzerland, nineteen ninety three, and he was five shots off the lead with six holes to play. And he birdied the 13th, birdied the 14th, birdied the 15th, birdied the 16th, birdied the 17th. So now he's tied for the lead. It's the three-wood off the last tee behind an eight-foot concrete wall that had fir trees all over the top of the wall. It was, it was dead. And as he walked in, how is it? And I just slipped my throat and said, chip it out sideways. And on on, Billy, I, I think I see something. Eh? I'm like, what? what is he going on about? Because you know, now he's like... Blind, he's having to hit it over the. It's probably seven feet from the wall. He's got to get it over this eight foot wall, concrete wall. But then it's just fir trees all above the wall. He's hitting it towards ten o'clock diagonally over this wall through these trees that there's not a, there's hardly a chink of daylight. So please, have you just just chip it out? You can wedge it on the green, still make par. You can still win the tournament. Oh no, Billy, I I think I see the shot there. I come here, have a look, and he's he's on his hands and knees looking, and he's looking at this. Tiny bit of daylight. It's probably the size of a dinner plate, which is about 10 yards to the left towards 10 o'clock, 10 foot over the wall, like, you know. I'm like, you've lost the plot, mate. Just chip it out, will you? No, no, no. Why I listen to you? Why I, Why you put doubt in my mind, you son of my bitch? I have the shot. <laughs> Go get the yardage. So I've walked to here. Honestly, to this day on my kid's life, I walked to the edge of the fairway. I never even got a yardage. I just eyeballed it. I just went, nah. 130 he'll do. I walked back, I went, 130 yards. Okay, give me the pitching wedge, And he's got this pitching wedge, and I said, look, you know, the famous magician in England at the time was Paul Daniels. I said, look, I know you're Seve Balasius, we're not effing Paul Daniels, just chip it out, will you? Why? Why I listen to you, you son of my bitch? Why are you put out in my mind? I show you, I have this shot. You're the caddy, carry the bag, I am the player, I play the shot. Now piss off. You know, he's like, so I walked away, tripping up my bottom lip, thinking he's going to hit the wall, ball's going to come back, plug between his eyes and kill him so I have no boss. But more importantly, I'm going to lose my percentage money. Anyway, it's this shot. I've got miles away, so just in case it comes back, and it's me. Anyway, I'm side on about 80 yards to the, to the left of him. I see dust fly everywhere. I don't hit the wall. I don't hit any branches. Then the next minute, I see this ball. It's going over the swimming pool, over the top of the diving board with Jean-Claude on top of it. And then there used to be like four 80-foot pine trees, about 50 yards short of the green. And as it's going over the top of them, I remember saying to myself, I'm actually witnessing the best golf shot that's ever been played in tournament history. And it landed like a yard short of the green. It's one of the best shots I've ever seen. The imagination, none of these players have played the shot. They wouldn't even see it. But he played it. And, and it just shows to show if they'd given the right yard, he'd probably knocked it on. But, you know, that's another, another story in itself, you know. But then we got up there. And he chipped it in for birdie. So I had to get down my hands and knees, bowing to him, saying, So Balasius, you are God. You are God. <laughs> bowing on my knees, and he dragged me back up. And, you know, it was uh, an incredible... And it's uh, 27 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was outstanding. I've heard you tell that story before, Billy, with uh, pictures on TV, and they had some pictures. The shot was never captured on film. Tragically, no, although him getting out on his knees and looking up through the gap and like, all that was, and then the ball landing in front of the green, and then his chip from there. I'll put a link to that. In. I'll find that on YouTube and put a link to that in the chat because the story with the pictures is just fantastic. Why yeah. didn't you think he could do it, Billy? Surely he'd shown you enough by then. How long have you been working for? Him? 
Uh, I've been working for him uh, nearly three years, you know. Uh, yeah, of course, you saw these shots on a daily, and I mean a, a daily basis. You know, certainly a couple of shots a week mm-hmm. and just... It just make you draw breath and go, what the hell is that like? You know, you know, if it, it, it two irons through a four foot gap, ninety yards in front of him, you know, and straight in the middle of the trees and just pull it off every time. But you get him in the middle of the fairway, you know, he'd snap hook it left of the green. But if you had the imagination to see the shot, he pulled it off. Mm. I'd say ninety five percent of the time he pulled it off. You know, I knew he could do it, but this was one step too far in my opinion. It was just mm. absolutely bonkers. But yeah, and Rod, every time, every time I go up to cry, I go over to uh, where the, 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 the plaque is. They've got a little plaque there. I mean, he was probably a, a, a couple of feet further away from the wall, but you stand and you look at it, and you can understand why Billy was saying just chip it out because it literally cannot be done. For any other human being, I promise you, it cannot be done. It wouldn't enter their mind, and you stand there and think, what, what possessed him to take it on? And B, how did he do it? Billy, it was just uh, it was the, the thing, was, thing. The thing was, it was such a hard shot to get it over the wall from being so yeah. close to it. But to thread it through the eye of a needle in the middle of the trees, because if it clips one branch, it's mm. dropping the other side of the wall, which is out of bounds. So it was yeah. it was a mentalist shot. The only other shot that can half compared it was the shot that Mickelson played out of the trees on 13 at Augusta, and I was on the receiving end of that one as well. You know, it's ultimately one in the masses. That's the only other shot that you can say that were bonkers. What did he do it for? But he pulled it off. What's that about, Tony? What is that in a player? That ability, that innate. That was obviously the magic of Seve, and it's the appeal of Seve. It's the magic of Seve. It's sheer natural genius that uh, you can't emulate. You know, I remember being down at St. Pierre down at uh, Chepster. We had a uh, match play tournament down there years ago, and the hotel was L-shaped, and they had this little chipping green in the in the sort of <coughs> corner of the elbow. And we were all staying in the hotel, and I went down there at 6 o'clock in the evening. I thought, I'll go and hit a few chips. And Sevi was down there with uh, Manuel Pinera. So we're all just chipping, and these two are having a little competition together. And the next thing I hear Pinera laughing. And he's got a ball, and he's stamped on the ball. And probably a third of the ball has got underground, softish ground. And he said, you know, basically play that. And Sevi gets up, takes an almighty swing at this thing, and it pops up in the air. It goes 50 feet up in the air, comes down and lands. And, and lands like a butterfly with sore feet. It lands and runs two feet, about four feet from the hole. I thought, my, my goodness, that's uh, rather sensational. The next thing, Panera gets another ball, stamps it down, and now there's half the ball on the ground. I mean, it cannot be done. I'm sorry, it just can't. Sansevi's going, hey, no, no, no problem. I play this, I play this. And, you know, he's putting on a bit of show for me as well because uh, he knows that I'm, you know, I'm, I've got saliva dribbling out the sides <laughs> of my mouth now watching the, the genius of Biasteros. And he got down, and I promise you, he made a swing. If it had a driver in his hand, he would have hit it 300. And remember now, he's aiming straight at the windows of the hotel with a plug ball. I mean, it's just it's psycho. He takes a divot about nine inches long. This thing pops up in the air, lands on the green, lands as soft as you can possibly imagine, and runs three inches. And I mean, that is, it's contrary to physics. That just cannot be done. And I knew it then, and I still know it now that I'd watched a miracle. And even Panera fell about laughing because it was just, and Panera was seriously good with the wedges. Villian played to remember him. And he couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And I just packed up my balls and went back to my room. And I thought, well, you know, this is just, this is, I'm, I'm wasting my time. What am I practicing for? This guy's a freak. And that's the sort of thing he did. And you could not, Clayton, you couldn't put your finger on it, could you? It was just, it was sheer, unadulterated genius. 
Yeah, I, I, I remember his full shots more than his little shots because, you know, amazing, great long shots he hit. But tell us about, this was a great story I've heard you tell before, about the putter in the bunker. Tell us, oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great you know, story. I mean, it's, um, that must have been an unbelievable shot. Oh, it was unbelievable. You know, I said earlier that he was the only man I ever went to watch, and that was the first occasion I went out. It was uh, at the Scandinavian Open, early 80s, and uh, my buddy Dave Stratton, who I was traveling with in those days, we finished playing in the morning, and we decided, right, we'll go and, play, go and watch Seve uh, play a couple of holes. And he gets up on this par five. It's a long time ago. I can't remember what number it was. Um and he's hit his, his second shot into this par five, and he's pulled it slightly. The flag is tucked left. I mean, the flag is three yards off the left edge of the green. It's just really tight. And he's pulled the shot, and it's pitched in the far under the far back lip of the bunker, the left hand, basically the left hand lip of the bunker, and it's pitched just below the level of the turf in the sand, and the entire ball is buried underground the whole ball the only way you could see the ball is if you go to the right hand side the green side of the bunker and look sideways to see any of the ball it's, it's just it's gone it's buried so we stand in there and Sebi gets up there and you know he starts sort of looking over the edge of the bunker trying to work out where the ball is and he starts with a sandwich takes the sandwich out makes a few swings and he basically goes through most of the bag and eventually it was the the light bulb moment you could see it it just dawned on him and the next thing out comes his old pin putter, and he looks over the edge of the bunker again, gets it lined up, a couple of practice swings, turns the putter on its toe. And he thought, well, what, what is he doing here? Now, this is, this is madness. The next thing, he makes this almighty heave, a huge swing with a putter, and it removes about six inches of the lip of the bunker. The ball comes scooting down the bunker at 100 miles an hour, shoots up the far lip, up in the air, comes down gently on the green and runs up about two feet short of the hole. And I looked at Dave Stratton, he looked at me, and I said to him, that's enough for me. This is going to break me if I keep watching this guy do stuff like this. And we both did a U-turn and walked back to the club, and we didn't say a word on the way in. It was the most amazing shot, and he literally fabricated that shot there and then. He had never practiced that because nobody ever would. And you could see it just come upon him, I can do this. He was, he was just not prepared to admit defeat and give up. It was the most amazing thing I think I ever saw on a golf course. It's funny, Tony. It strikes me that the, the truly great, the, the Sevies and the Tigers and the Jacks, they play shots that other players might have played as kids and thought, oh, we'll have a go at this and see what happens. But they'll play them at moments that are extraordinary. And what Billy outlined there behind that wall in Krantz, there's probably a lot of players as kids would go, oh, yeah, we'll have a go at this one. Though. You know, who can get it up and through the gap? But you would never play it. It defies every, every convention about being a professional golfer, doesn't it? But they take it on. And it's, I think it's just the self-belief in their, in their own ability. Tiger, we've seen Tiger how many times over the years, you know, produce an impossible shot at the perfect moment. And as you say, the, the true geniuses of the game have a way to do that. And they have the belief, you know, most guys, if they pulled that shot off a hundred times in practice, they still wouldn't do it in, in a tournament. But those guys, the, the, the special ones in inverted commas, they just get up and do it, and that's why they're special. It's the give me the ball, isn't it? I want the ball. I want all the pressure. Yeah. I want the chance to, to both succeed and <laughs> fail. Billy, I recall. It's funny, you just, you just reminded me there, Tony. Um, you know, when he used to get taught by Mac O'Grady, Mac O'Grady, you know, Mac's obviously a bit crazy, and Sevy's a bit crazy as well, so they were a good tag team, Batman and Robin, you know. But uh, <laughs> when Sevy was on the range, Mac would literally stand four feet in front of him with his back to him, and Sevy had it full swings with his 56-degree sandwich. 
and they'd literally just float over his shoulder and Mac could catch him in his hand. I mean, four foot, in, four foot in front of him, full swing, and it came down like a butterfly in his hand over his shoulder. Now, I don't uh, think it's crazy. Sevy for having a go at it, or Mac for standing there. I probably say Mac for standing there, to be quite honest, but I wouldn't have stood there. But no. you know, that's how much faith he had in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Billy, I, I heard or read somewhere about Sevy talking once about how he would decide to play a shot, that he would just let the movies play in his mind until the right one came up. And once he had that picture, he would go and hit a shot. Could you see that? Did he ever talk to you about how these things came? Could you see that process unfolding for him? Could you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he would, he would uh, you know, he'd take his time and, you know, he would, you know, he'd walk forward, he'd come back, he'd stand behind it, he'd go to the side, he'd really evaluate and, like say, paint a picture all the time. And that's what we were trying to refer to earlier about when he actually pictured the shot. He was the most naturally gifted player mm. with so much success and his success rate out of trouble and everything. But then when he went in the middle of the fairway and got wrapped up in technique and thinking about his positions of his swing, mm. that's when it all went pear-shaped. But, yeah, he, he used to paint the picture big time and, um, you know, and that's when he played his best golf for sure. There's a little bit of – you see a bit of that in Bubba Watson, don't you, Clay? It's almost that if it's too straightforward, it doesn't engage him enough to actually get him to play. He's got to have something. That hook shot he hit out of the trees when he won the Masters, you know, you know in 2012 against West Haven. Is the only player, is the only player that I'd go out and watch? If somebody weird. said to me, go and watch a golf tournament yeah. tomorrow, to go and watch Bubba Watson. He's exciting. Yeah. He shapes the shots. He plays yeah. shots. And mm. got these guys to the – the art of shot making's finished, mate. Yep. You know, I've witnessed the best golf that'll ever be played from 1980, whatever it was, to probably 2000, early 2000s. The last 15 years, shot making's been finished. It's about teeing up and bombing it 350 yards and hitting a wedge from 180 yards. It's rubbish. Something needs yeah, to be done yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. I witnessed the best shot maker of all time, but now nobody shapes shots anymore. But Bubba Watson is one of the very, very few players that actually does shape shots, and he's the only one worth watching, in my opinion. I saw Sammy hit a shot. True. Yeah, I saw, I was 1980, I was an amateur. He was. He just made the cut at the Martini at Wentworth. 36 the last day, so there was a rain out, playing with Roger Davis. And he got in the 10th at Wentworth, Billy, you know the whole well. And yeah. the pin was way over behind the trees <clears> on the right. And you either played left and putted across or you hit it up over the trees, blind shot, mm. blind par three, really. And he hit this three iron at the left corner of the green and sliced it around the trees to about eight feet. It's like, <laughs> you know, it was, what was that? And as you were saying, Billy, you almost, I mean, I mean, it's obviously easier to hook it. So Barbara being a left-hander could probably hit that shot. But to hit a three iron and cut it across the face of that green, what, 20 or 30 yards? It was just yeah. unbelievable. It was an unbelievable shot. It was like, and and Sam, he easily could have just hit it over the top. I mean, there was, you know, the, the standard shot was take take your forearm out and knock it over the trees. And yeah. I'm sure he could, I'm, I'm sure he could have hit it to eight foot. But it was just an unbelievable shot that, you know, as you said, Tony, when you see shots like that, like the putter out of the bunker, you look and go, how do you even think of that? Let alone try it. Let alone pull it off. It was just yeah. amazing what he could do. No, you just reminded was... me of one there, Jimmy. He, you know, if I had to choose one shot that probably challenges the shot that he played in Switzerland, uh, I don't know if you know the course, but Hazeltine, 
Hazel team. It used to be the 16th hole. They played it. As it was the seventh hole in the Ryder Cup because they played the other nine. But in the US Open, it was the 16th hole, and it's a it's a dog leg water on the left, like a stream off the left, up the left side of the fairway. There was a big oak tree on the right edge of the fairway where your tee shot had land. And then the green went out to the right into a peninsula into the middle of the lake. It was a yeah. semi-island green as such. And so we did this tee shot uh, behind the big oak tree on the right. And he probably only had about 145, 150 yards. So basically in them days, it was like an eight iron. But he'd no shot because the big oak tree was right in his way. And he said, Billy, give me the three iron. Eh? I'm like, what? So I'm thinking <laughs> he's going to hit this three iron and sort of like, you know, hit a little punchy low cut and, you know, maybe get it down the 20 yard short of the green or something, you know. <laughs> Honestly, he proceeded to hit this thing 80 yards left with a full blown three iron. He must have sliced it maybe 60 yards and, it, and he got it in the middle of the green. And that shot will never have been seen on camera, but. That was arguably the best shot I ever saw him play. It was incredible. (laughs) I would have the balls to try that. Billy, I've got to say, I am so jealous that you spent so much time so close to a man that we all love because, you know, we all knew him and we we loved him. But the fact that you were his bag man on his shoulder and saw all these magnificent things, uh, if you don't do a book about Seve, I'm afraid we're all going to have to just shoot you. As simple as that. <laughs> well, I haven't got <laughs> enough time on my hands to think about a book tour. <laughs> too busy at the moment. <laughs> yeah, too, it actually went through my mind about two days ago thinking, I've got to take advantage of this time and do some things, you know, because uh, yeah. it could be, you know, in my opinion, in my head, I'm going like, we, we won't be playing golf before September at best. Oh, so lucky. I don't think the Open will happen. I don't think the Ryder Cup will happen. Mm. It's not my opinion, like, but it's it's serious stuff. This and uh, yeah, I might have time to do something. But oh, uh, do it, please, Billy, because one, you know, of f- one of my the favorite stories, stories have to be put down in print for future generations to remember just how brilliant he was. This is a great story, and I've actually got it on my phone because it was told to me by Jose Maria. And um, if you cast your mind back to the Ryder Cup at um, Muirfield Village, the first time we won on American soil, nineteen eighty-seven. I was caddying for Gordon Brown Jr., but, you know, Seve was in the locker room and, you know, as soon as them spikes go on and that European logo goes on his breast mm. and the hat goes on and then last but not least, a European muzzle <laughs> frothing like a demented <laughs> rock violin as he leaves the locker room, straight at the leash going to the first tee. Tony Jacklin, the captain, he's, he's partnered him with a young kid, Jose Maria Lazabal. Nobody's hardly ever heard of him. He's only been a pro a few months. And as I walk to the first tee, Seve puts his arm round him. Jose, you listen to me, eh? Because they're playing Curtis Strange and Tom Kite, who Seve absolutely despised. <laughs> Jose, you, he's got his arm round him. Jose, you listen to me, eh? You are a fantastic champion, the rookie of the year. You are going to be the best player in Europe and win many major championships. But today, you just concentrate on your game, eh? And I will take care of these son of my bitches. <laughs> All right? Jose's like, my God. So they get on the first tee. They all tee off. Jose's playing his second shot first. Hits it on the green to about 40 feet. The two septic tanks hit on the green about 30 feet. And then Savage, Savage last light, you know, pins back left. He's going to have a go for it. Hits the shot, pulls it left of the green. Me Carlos, Tia is a puta madre. Coming to you. He's losing the head. <laughs> Biting his grips, punching himself, hitting it like, you know. So as we're walking down there now, it's Jose Maria's first ever all in a Ryder Cup. So much pressure, so much nerves. Seve's head's off because he's let him down by not hitting the green. 
lift the pressure off him. So several years, a bit of a think. He goes, hey, Jose, you listen to me. I come here. When we get to the green, you put first, hey, and then, um, you know, maybe you roll it close and you make the four and then uh, I can go for the chip in, eh? Jose's like, what? No, 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 you, you listen, you put first, eh? So they get down there. Long story short, Jose rolls it up, three foot past, and he marks it. So Seve's down left of the green. He's looking across, Jose, you'll finish, eh? I can't if I got. So Jose puts the ball back down. He's, he's about to walk in to haul it. With that, Curtis Strange chirps up, Jose, we'd rather you not finish because he could be studying our through line. So now Jose, his first ever all, he's nervous, he doesn't know what he's doing. And now he's now, you know, he's doing okey-cokey, he's backwards and forwards, don't know whether to finish or don't. If he finishes, <laughs> he's going to get told off by the Americans. If he don't, he's got the grand senor breathing fire down him. So now he's doing an impression of Keegan Bradley, he doesn't know whether he's coming or going, you know. <laughs> so next minute, Jose, Jose is looking across, Seve goes, hey, what's going on over there, eh? He says, well, Curtis Strange don't want me to finish. Huh. I'll just mark it then. I'll chip it in anyway. Eh? So he runs back down the hill. Sevier's this flop shot on the green. Trickles down the ice staircase. Bingo. Chips it in. <laughs> I mean, runs up on the green, punching the air like he did at St Andrews, fluffing at the mouth, going mental. Picks Jose's marker up, slams it in his hand, straight in his face. See, I tell you, eh? And he walks 15 yards straight across the green to Curtis Strange, straight in his face. And it comes now, Curtis! What a competitor, like. I mean, horrible to play against. I mean, he was the ultimate nightmare to play against. He despised you with a passion. And they got into a massive argument at, uh, with Paul Erzinger and Chip Beck at Keyword Island in 91, you know, because Paul Erzinger had been changing the balls backwards and forwards on the front nine changing the compression of the ball into the wind. They were playing 100 compression downwind. They changed it to a 90. And you weren't allowed to change the ball. It was a one-ball rule. So Jose's noticed it. Going down the ninth, you know, Jose's made it aware that they've been changing the ball. So they get to the 10th tee. Meanwhile, Paul Erzing has hauled a 30-footer on the ninth green to go three up. I mean, Jose and Seve never got beat. God and Jesus couldn't beat. Seve and Elizabeth and the three down after nine so they get on the 10th tee I promise they argued for 25 minutes on the 10th tee Paul Erzinger deny 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 no we didn't no we didn't no we didn't then eventually once the referee explains well once the flag sticks in and the hole's finished the hole's over you can't do anything about it so once Erzinger realised there was still going to be three up then his Alzheimer's disappeared uh, oh, yeah, you're right. Yes, we did, Jose. I'm sorry. Yeah, I did do that on the eighth. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we did change back on the down. I'm really sorry. That, yeah, three up. And then Azinger walked past me and just went, nice try. I was like, hoo, hoo, So as I walked off the tee, the 10th tee, I've grabbed Seve by the pocket and pulled him back. Did you hear what he just said? What? He just said, nice try. Well, you should see a man's face change to the most bitter, evil psychopath on the golf course of all time. Jose, you listen to me, eh? You hear? He say, nice try. We beat these son of my bitches. We rip their hearts out and give it on a platter to them on the last green. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, the one, the one five out of the next eight holes and beat Azing and back two and one. So you do up, piss her down with grumpy Spaniards, you know? But that, was the com- that, that was the competitor of the man, like, evil. <laughs> he could have been. Really... people have that, uh, that fear factor. You know, Tiger obviously had it. Seve had it. 
the very few I could count on one hand, you know, as soon as the names went on that leaderboard, it struck the fear of God in him. And, you know, he certainly struck the fear of God in his opponents, for sure. <laughs> Staggering stuff to listen to. Tony, let's talk about some shots and moments. You've already mentioned the one that you saw in the bunker and whatnot. What was the first shot you ever saw Seve hit that made you go, ooh, can you do that? Because it's, it's unusual for pros to be able to do that, isn't it? To hit something that the other pros go, oh, I could never see that happening. Clates has mentioned one. You've mentioned one. What was the first one you ever saw where you thought, wow, maybe the hype's real about this guy? Uh, probably that shot I saw from the bunker because I think he teed off the 10th. It might have been about the 12th. So he, 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 we'd only been there a couple of holes. Um, and it was just it was just staggering. It, it just uh, it defied logic. It defied everything. And uh, I walked back in thinking, well, you know, if this guy – is uh, as good as I get. I've got a heck of a long way to go and a lot of practice to do if I'm going to ever be able to compete with the likes of him. So it was a good eye-opener. And, uh, you know, there were so many great shots over the years that uh, you, you can't sort of enumerate them. When you played with Seve, A, you felt, you always felt like it was an honor. Um, and I think one of two things happened. Guys either panicked, froze and hacked, or you just loved being out there with Seve and it brought out the best in you. And, uh, you know, Seve was... We'd be honest, as much as I loved the man, he wasn't averse to a little bit of um, gamesmanship. You know, the famous one was those big size nine or ten white foot joys of his. You know, you get to the top of the swing and the foot would just give a gentle little swing. I don't know if it was intentional or not. Uh, I'd like to think not. But, um, you know, you you wanted to beat him. You wanted to beat him, but, man, it was it was a tall order and a tough task. But you enjoyed every second that you ever played with a man. Clay, you've said a bunch of times that the players adored Seve. I know we've talked about this. And I'm not sure I ever really grasped it. But why? What did you mean by that? Because he he could be a flighty character, couldn't he? He wasn't always terrific to be about necessarily, as Billy no doubt could attest. Well, he was charismatic. As Tony said, he was the only guy, the only person I've ever met who was – in fact, Tony and I did meet. We were at that match in Johannesburg where we all met Mandela and – you're right. It was it was the same, but um, he was he was truly charismatic and um, he cared about people. I think. I mean, with, with Greg, you Greg cared about Greg, and Nick cared about Nick, and Bernard cared about Bernard. But Sevy always <coughs> at least he gave you the impression that he cared about everybody, and mm. um, he was a beautiful looking man. We, we all wanted to be him, really. And, and as Billy alluded to. You know, no one would have wanted the last 10 years of Seve's life. That was the great sadness of his life was that everyone wanted to be him for the first until he was, you know, his, his mid-30s. But the last 10 or 15 years were terrible, really. It was so sad to see what happened to him. But, you know, he was um, – we all wanted to play golf like him. We're all in awe of his talent, really. And, you know, we, we keep repeating the same thing, but – but it's more than that, isn't um, it, Clay? It's, it's yeah, more than just it was, the golf. That's only a it, part it, of it, I think. It, it was such an interesting player to watch. Not just hit the ball, but the way he walked down the fairway, the way he took the club out of the bag, the way he acknowledged the crowd, the way the, every single thing he did was interesting. It was interesting to watch. I, I would find myself just kind of staring at him. And wherever we were, in, a, you know, in, in the clubhouse or the players' lands or waiting for a courtesy car or Whatever he was, always just a fascinating guy to watch, which is what charisma is, I guess. Really, yeah. you know, it's like a great actor who forces you to to watch, and you, you watch every move, and you study it, and you wonder 
why he's like that or how did he get to be like that? And was he like that when he was seven or eight years old? Or, you know, did Manuel and his other brothers see it in him when he was a, you know, a little kid? I mean, you know, did, when did it first manifest itself like that? And, and when did he realize he was like that? Or perhaps he never did. I'm not sure. But, you know, Do you know what I think was a big factor, Jimmy? Um, the fact that, you know, his parents were potless and, you know, all these kids today get everything on a silver platter for him and a new, brand new set of clubs and this and that. And, you know, Seve made his own golf club, basically. He only had one golf club, so he basically taught himself how to play all the shots with one club. That's why he was so naturally gifted and such a shot maker because he was on that beach with one club just trying to imagine all sorts of shots, you know, cutting up little chips and yeah. three irons and drilling shots and all with one club. That's why he's got the imagination from such a young age. Yeah, it's funny. I played with a bloke last week at Metro with who's got a 12-year-old kid who I, I've never seen play. But he said, yeah, my 12-year-old son's a good player. I said, does he have a lob wedge? He said, yeah. I said, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, why a 12-year-old needs a lob wedge is you know, I said, Seve Ballester has learned to play the game with one club. And that should tell, I mean, most of us in the 70s, obviously, I don't know about you, but I had, you know, my first set was six clubs and you learned yeah. to play with six clubs. And you, you never see a 12-year-old kid who doesn't have 14 clubs in his bag, including a long nah, wedge. Fitted. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> I said, the greatest short game player ever learned to play yeah. these shots with a three-iron. So what have you got a long wedge mm. for? It yeah, wasn't yeah. a nine-iron or a wedge, at least. I mean, but. like I said, 56 degrees was the maximum loft he had in his bag all the time I worked for him. Mm. I did a thing with some uh, young young kids from the Dutch Federation three or four years ago. And the purpose, I walked 18 holes and on like the second hole, I just walked to the left-hand side of the green. Pim was at the back. There was a small slope at the front. And I just threw a few balls in. I said, right, let's just hit me this shot. And you could oh. see, to me, I was looking at going, well, this is a pitching wedge. Just land it a couple of yards on the green and get it running like a foot up the green. Every one of them pulled a lob wedge and I got mm. all the lob wedges and threw them in the bushes as a joke, but I did. I said, right, wedge now. You know, yeah. you just don't see it because. No. But going back to Seve, it was like it was like caddying for the Beatles. It's the only way to describe it. Every no. time you went to the tee, the, you know, the screaming fans and <laughs> honestly, it was like caddying for the Beatles. It was, you had such no. a buzz every day you went to work with him. Incredible. And, and Rod, you know, just uh, referring back to Seve's warmth, I'll tell you a little story. We were playing the European Open uh, just down the road from my house here at Sunnydale years ago. And I went down there at about 6 o'clock in the evening just to hit a few putts because I was putting like a drain. Get there. The only other man on the putting grid is Seve and he's putting away. So I've got my, my uh, boy Dale with me who's five at that, at that stage. So he's, he's just sitting there watching me putt. And I always putted with quite a pronounced jab. And the next thing, Sevi comes over and he says, hey, Tommy, Tommy. He always called me Tommy for some reason. Um, he says, you, this is no good, eh? this jab. No, 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 no good. You stroke the ball, you stroke the ball. So he starts giving me a putting lesson. And, you know, the, the veranda of the clubhouse is full of members. So I'm knocking a few putts into the hole. And eventually he says to Dale, he's sitting on the other side of the hole, he says, hey, Dale, Dale, you throw the ball back. You throw the ball back, you're doing nothing. So I knock a putt in. Dale takes the ball out the hole, stands up and gives it the windmill with the right hand and lets fly. And absolutely pins Seve flush in the crown jewels. Absolutely nails it. And, and he goes, he just collapses like a like a sack of potatoes, hands and knees on the putting green. All the all the members laughing their heads off, and he's groveling. 
And, you know, most people you'd think, ease you little brat, I should give you a bit of a slap here. And eventually he gets his breath back and he looks up at Dale, who's just mortified. You know, this is Seve. You know, he's heard me talk about Seve. And he looks over at Dale and says, hey, Dale, you throw the ball really good. eh?" And from that moment on, Dale was just, he was a Seve fan for the rest of his life. It was just a magnificent moment. You know, he could quite easily have just said, I'm out of here. I I, want to keep these things intact. But the way he handled the whole situation with my with my young five year old was just it was magnificent to behold. Well, you know, it's like that. Um, it's like that film that was up on Twitter the other day. Billy, you were probably working for a minute when it, when the cameraman at Wentworth when he yeah was he backed off and yeah. said, "I know you are nervous, sir, but I'm nervous too." That was just like yeah. that was a, that was the final the um, final day of the. The PGA, PGA championship, right? yeah. yeah, PGA championship that he won. He beat Monty in the playoff. That was on the seventeenth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, it's a great Greg line. Just, you know, I, I saw Greg with a ten-shot lead at the Australian Open at Royal Melbourne, tear the head off a cameraman who moved behind the eighteenth tee, and you know, it was it was just such a perfect way to handle that situation. It was yeah. incredible. How, you know, he, he could have gone completely ballistic at this guy, and just it was just brilliant. It was amazing. You know. And to say that obviously English English wasn't his natural language, it was a it was a mm. great one line. He couldn't have scripted it any better. Yeah. And that showed his human side of him. He was yeah. he was, a, he was an absolute gentleman. I'll tell you what, I do I quite I do a bit of after dinner speaking, Tony, and um, I must admit one of my favourite stories, uh, I'm not gonna tell it because it was the sixth hole that came in a golf club in uh, the Dutch Open, so I may as well let you carry on because you were with part of it. Yeah, that was that was an absolute the sprinkler. Another. One of the highlights of my career, sharp dogleg par four, short par four, and uh, you you hit over a rise, and I'm I'm ahead. I'm about thirty yards ahead. I've teed off first, charge down there, and there's a single lone tree on the corner of the dogleg, and there's one ball absolutely stone dead up against the tree, and there's another one ten yards further on in the fairway. So uh, I wander over there and I have a look at this ball, and as he comes wandering up, there's there's a lone sprinkler about six feet away. So I've put a club down behind the ball and stretched with my right foot as far as I can to touch the sprinkler. And I said, hey, Sidi, uh, do I get relief here? He says, hey, no, no, natural stance only, a natural stance. I said, oh, okay. I then turn around and I put my left foot, I stretch that one out six feet. I said, well, well Sidi, how about this? Is this natural stance, can I, can, I, can I get a drop here? He says, no, 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 natural stance, natural stance. He says, I know the rules. I said, yeah, I know the rules too, Sidi. And uh, I think you're right. There's no drop here, which is a good thing because this is your ball and that's mine in the fairway. <laughs> so <laughs> he says, hey, okay, you think you're clever. Eh? I just keep it out. <laughs> so he chips it out sideways, knocks it onto 20 feet. I wedge it onto 30 feet. As luck would have it, you know, he always had to come out tops. I three putt for five. He holds the putt for four. I mean, you you know, you can't script this bloody stuff. And as we walk <laughs> off the grid, at the corner of his mouth, and said he didn't swear much, but and I won't use the word, but basically he said, hey, you see what happened when you mess with Sebi? <laughs> and he just kept on straight past me. I mean, you know, and we all just cracked up laughing. It was just the most perfect Sebi moment of all time. <laughs> uh, what a man. What a man. How much have we been missing? Yeah. What made him laugh, Billy? What what tuned Sevy's sense of humour? Did you notice Sevy's? Did he have an odd sense of humour? What were the things that made him sort of giggle? Uh, yeah, look, there were that many things. You know, you, you so many things that happened on the on the round of a golf course. You know, I mean, um, you know, 
good looking women to get his attention all the way around and all that. I just have to go into the gallery now and again, you know, but um, <laughs> it's a legendary <laughs> like that. But um, no, he, he had a good sense of humour of all things, um, you know, mm. things that happen to other players, you know, mishaps that always make us chuckle, you know, but uh, he had a great sense of humour as well. For Like mm. I said, for a guy that want his English wanted his natural language, mm. nothing, nothing that stood out uh, in particular, you know. And Billy, you know, you, you always got the feeling with Sebi when he walked into a, a player's lounge, the reaction of the wives, you always got the distinct feeling that they were thinking, why have I married this clown? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, he, uh, he had a reputation for being a bit tight, you know, uh, he didn't like, you know, every time he opened his wallet, you know, a couple of moths dropped out, there was never much cash in there, like, you know. I'll tell you one story on my kid's life again, it's a true story. So we're in uh, Jacksonville, Players' Championship, and um, we're leaving there. And uh, the next tournament was the Masters. Going back, you know, I think it was nine ninety one. So anyway, I've got this hire car, and we go to the, the desk. And no, no, I, I get the hire car. I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I've booked the hire car. We've we've got a lift to this Hertz rent a car, whatever it is. I walk in there. I said, yeah, we've got a car, uh, one way rental to Augusta, Georgia. Uh, what's the name? Uh, Ballesteros. Just puts it in. He comes across now. He's got the wallet out. Gets the gold American Express out. Puts it on the counter. She says, "Okay, Mister Ballesteros, uh, one way rental to Augusta, Georgia. That'd be ninety-seven dollars and eleven cents." And it's going, "Okay, Ballesteros." And she said to me, "Are you going to drive?" I went, "Yeah, yeah, probably. I need your driving license." So I put my driving license on the counter. She's back on the computer. She goes, "Okay, Mister Ballesteros, one way rental to Augusta, Georgia. That'll be a hundred and one dollars and eleven cents." He goes, no, 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 no. And he grabs my driving licence, gives me the ugliest scowl and glare, puts it in my hand. No, no, he no driver, eh? Uh, one way then, <laughs> Augustus. She goes, OK, Mr. Ballasters, that'd be $97.11. I go, vale, gracias, Dios. And <laughs> gets the keys. Muchas gracias, Dios. Off we go. Have a nice day and all that. You know, we walk out. I said, Sevi. It's a six-hour drive to Augusta. You've got a bad back, and it's the Masters next week. Surely you want me to drive? He goes, <laughs> yes, you drive, but I say $4, eh? <laughs> could not believe it eh? on the kid's life. Now we've got to drive six hours to Augusta, and if I crash, we're not insured. But it's say $4 <laughs> on the kid's life. True story. <laughs> Mind-blowing. He was down to his last $18 million at that stage. Dear idea. Uh, what is that about? <laughs> so, so what really, he... he never lost that. He never lost that. Yeah. Um, that real life peasant mentality, which were great. Because mm. it's mm. it's what shapes a person, isn't it? And it's what absolutely the golf is one. He never thing. Ch- he never changed. A, yeah, that's an ability with all his success. Yeah, never changed. Yeah, the rest of it's about the person. What do you remember about the first time you met him, Clates? Were you sort of in awe? Were you nervous? Were you... And how was he with you? Did you get to spend much time with Seve around the place? He's a bit of a star, obviously. I remember the first, I remember the last time I saw him was we were at uh, Hoylake. They opened. He played at Hoylake. Remember that Billy when his son two thousand six. Yeah, and his game was. And I saw him. I hadn't seen him for years, and it was like it was like I you know we saw each other the day before. He's faced it up, and it was like you know he made you feel like you were the most important person in the world. It was incredible, and I hadn't seen him for years, mm. and it was. It was the last time I saw him, and it was, you know, it was um, the first time. I, I don't remember the first time I met him. I, I remember the, you know, Royal Melbourne obviously was the first time I saw him play. And, you know, I still remember shots he hit and things he did on the golf course. And, you know, they're things that never leave you, really. The, 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 uh, Greg Turner and I went and watched him play in Madrid one year. Put it here. 
And he played with Howard Clark. And I mean, you cut it for Howard, I think, Billy, didn't you? At some point, did you cut it for Howard ever? No, I didn't. No, I've cut it for oh, some no. psychos, but I, mean, yeah. I missed him yeah. out for some reason. He was, the top of, <laughs> he was the top of the tree for psychos. But um, <laughs> I remember, remember that little shelf at the back of the 11th hole at Potter de Hero, a long par three. And it was a we yeah, yeah, yeah. We all sort of bounced it in off the bank on the right. It was a bludger shot, but you could get it 30 feet away knock a three on out to the right and hit the bank and come down under that tier. And the last day, the pin was in the back tier, that tiny thing. It was the size of a tabletop. And Clarkie, who was a, you know, a tremendous player, bumped Grand it out to the right and kicked it off the hill down to about 30 foot. And Seve stood there with a two or three on it and flew it back there and stopped it like eight foot. It was just an unbelievable shot. You know, and you never forget stuff like that. And people, you know, someone who could make Howard Clark look like an artisan player was... It was freakish because Clarkie could really play. Yeah, it was a great ball strike. And he just made him look like you know, just another player with that shot. And, you know, he, he played with him the last day and beat him. Clarkie was second, but there was never any doubt as to who was going to win. You know, it was just a – and it was a clinic the whole way in. I mean, every single shot that he had to hit, he hit it perfectly. It was just – you know, I think people who call him a bad driver, I, mean, I, I saw him hit so many great drives. I mean, long – ripped mm-hmm. into the wind and high floated through the wind and good cut draws and cuts. And, you know, Seve, if Manuel had said to Seve when he was 14, Seve, I think you need to hit the ball straight and 265 yards down the fairway every hole, play like Kyle Irwin and Grant Marsh. Seve could have done that. He wouldn't have been Seve, but, you know, he could have done that. But that wasn't, what, that wasn't how he played or how he chose to play. And it was lucky that he didn't do that because I'm sure he could have hit every fairway if he wanted to. But that wasn't how I think what people forget. I think what people forget, Clerks, is you know, a lot of these lads remember him for his last ten years of being a player. But you don't win eighty golf tournaments around the world if you're not an unbelievably fantastic oh, yeah. player. Yeah, he was a, I mean, he was a great, a great ball striker. I mean, amazing yeah. iron shots and three and four irons and one irons. I remember playing with. Seve and Greg at, at Huntingdale one year in the Australian Masters, and that sixth at Huntingdale was just a driver and a three on and a wedge for me. And they both bombed these drives over the corner, hit these one irons up on the green that went over a skyscraper, and just you know, just incredible shots. And I mean, just brilliant stuff, amazing shots that other players couldn't hit. I mean, Greg could hit them, but you know, and Sandy could hit them, and Nicholas obviously, and Tiger after that, but. I mean, not you know, many guys could play that way. That, that's what I see. That's what I see now, Clerks, Is um, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about shot makers, and that's the thing. Now you remembered those players of them, them generations because there was there was only so many players could play them shots. You know, um, you know, shaping shots. You know, creating shots or or hitting high tower in two irons or whatever it was. You know. You know the the diff the golfing class between the great players and your average tour player was absolutely immense, mm. and the difference now is the great players and the good players are so much closer together because it's all much of the same stuff. Well, yeah, well, I mean, Rod and Jeff Shackelford and I have spoken about this to the ends of the earth, but the equipment's throwing so many players into the same pool, really. But, yeah, you know, the, the the same skill pool in terms of what they can do because everyone's a great driver now in terms of not accurate but long and high because the, the driver lets you do that. I mean, go back and play with a persimmon driver and a ballada ball and let's see him hit these shots and 
you know, the, the, the old blade um, one irons that Slazenger and um, Spalding and Mizuno made that, you know, you had to be a proper player to hit those things high in the air. I mean, I mean, we could all hit them low, but it was so hard to get them up in the air as high as those guys did. But now, yeah. if you can't do that, get a hybrid. Get a, get a seven wood and knock it up. <clears throat> you know, it's completely changed the game and it's not for the better. You'd know better than me, Clarence, but uh, there was a tournament last year and I can't think if it was Memphis or Colonial, probably Colonial. Where was Ben Organ from? Colonial, yeah, Colonial. Colonial, it would have been Colonial then. So on the range there, they had a whole line of Ben Organ golf clubs, persimmon woods, etc., and some of the old balls. I'll tell you what, some of these kids trying to hit them, were a, it was comedy half hour. Yeah. They couldn't <laughs> hit them. They could not hit them. Absolute dirt. Tell you actually, the Shambo hit them quite good, actually, which surprised me. But um, a lot of them, like 12 handicappers, try to use the old stuff. Of course, the, the thing is, Billy, that whilst that's true, it, it, it's because the players have adapted to the equipment that they're being Sure, yeah, yeah. So, I'm, and I'm not knocking the players as such. No, that's right. They could all do it, given the time. We've discussed that before. But, Tony yeah. Johnson, you yeah. watch an awful lot of golf in your commentary role, and it seems to me the people really missing out in this equipment debate is the spectators. We don't get to see the Seve-like shots and the shots that – Clates has just described, or Nicholas's one iron across the water at 15 at Augusta. I'd love to watch yeah. Rory make that decision. Do you know? Or, or Dustin Johnson or Brooks Kepka, one iron or a forward, or are they going to lay up? Where, uh, but we don't get to see it. We were the ones who really no, we it, don't. don't we? And, and you know what? I th- you know, the, yes, absolutely, the spectators are missing out. But I, I think the, um, the average golfer who never played with Persimmon and Bellata, they the the losers because – you know, with a Bellata and a Persimmon, when you got it out the screws, it was the most satisfying, joyous feeling. These days with the big-headed drivers and the new balls, heel, center, toe, basically they all feel the same. But with the old equipment, when you got it out the sweet spot, it was something that you didn't forget for weeks afterwards. And I think uh, a lot of the, the new generation of players will never experience that feeling uh, through their hands, that feeling of absolute purity and it is a pity and you know that was the thing with Seve he managed to hit the center of the sweet spot so often and uh, and and do it any shape he wanted any flight he wanted and uh, you know he had a gift he just had a gift it's as simple as that and uh, you know that's why that's why pro golfers went out to watch him you know good players in their own right great players yeah. You know, how many guys would go out and watch any of the, the, the new breed of players after a round now? Tigers. Not too many, I don't think. Tiger's the only one, isn't it? And we know that they've yep. all been out to watch yep. him. Billy, did you, or even Tony, but I'll ask you first, Billy, did you ever get to chat to Seve about the equipment and the, the way the game had changed? Did you have any thoughts on that? Did you ever get to get any thoughts on that? No, I didn't really. And you know, obviously, I, I, I split with Seve for 95, so... 25 years ago, really. So Five years before you know, it really changed. You know, it's a long time ago. So the modern-day stuff really hadn't come to the fore by then. And, you know, I, I'll, try to think, I'll try to think back there, you know, when I started working for Seve, he was 32, 33 years old. And, you know, he was he won his last tournament at the Spanish Open in 1995. So he was 37, 38 years old. He was, he was finished, washed up. He, he never played any decent golf from 37, 38 years old, which... Now you look at it, all these these lads in the mid forties are still playing brilliant golf, who even fifties. You know, it's a shame that you lost it so young. You know, but uh, yeah, we never really to speak. But but in fairness to Seve, he was he was the big star on that tour from nineteen seventy six for for twenty years. He was the he was the guy every single week who had the pressure. 
He was the big star. He was not in contention every single week, but lots of weeks. And 20 years is a long time to wear yourself out. I mean, sure, yeah. You know, yeah. Over his eyes, you know, sadly we weren't good enough players to be under that pressure every week, but 20 years at the top of the game is a long time for anyone. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, listen, course, he, he, yeah. he was and is a European tour and he made the Ryder Cup what it is today. And to me, the, the European tour should have made Seve's silhouette the logo for the tour, in my opinion, but, you know. They've yeah, got a rubbish T now, whatever it is. Seve Balassier should be the, the logo yeah. for the European Tour. That's how good he was. He, he made the European Tour what it is today. But yeah, yeah. He, had a, he, he took it all and he took all the all the hefty graph for 20 years, like you say, Clerks and, you know, legend. Yeah, I think it wears you out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, yeah, he, by, by 95 or 96, he, he looked like he was worn out. and It was no surprise because he'd, he'd been that guy... As Tiger has really, I mean, Tiger's been yeah, there for, sure, yeah. you know, it's twenty years now, more mm. even. Uh, you know, it, it must wear you out. That yeah, they're, they're almost a bit of a mirror image of each other. Them two, you know, it were almost like Seve. We finished in '95. Who come along in '96? Yeah, the chosen yeah. one. It's almost like mm. Seve passed the baton to the next mm. great thing of sport. You know, and and, and you know, it's the, the career's taken a similar similar path. You know, with injuries, etc. You, were, you of course, caddied for Tiger once, Billy, at a President's Cup, if I'm not mistaken. I did, yeah. So yeah, you've been up close uh, to both of them. It was, was that like? How do they compare? Very humbling and, uh, yeah, a great experience. A great experience. And uh, I must say, it was an, I have to say, it was an absolute gentleman to, to caddy for. Everything was please and thank you. Everything he came out of his mouth, which is what I tried try and drill into my kids, he was uh, exceptional, uh, his, his manners. Uh, and, you know, to, to witness... Again, the shot making so close up. It was something to behold. Just just his range sessions, you know, even just hitting 58 irons down the range, you know, it, a five-yard cut, a five-yard draw, a low one, a high one, and you could throw a blanket over the lot of them after 50 shots. And the most amazing thing, they want a divot. It, like nobody had been there. It was incredible to watch. Just, uh, remember, it got, me att- it got me attention that <laughs> I can be so impressed about somebody in a few eight irons. It was like exhibition stuff. Yeah. Where did you carry for it, Where was that? I carried for it at the President's Cup at um, 2005 in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. How, how did that come about? Uh, Steve Williams, his wife, was having a baby. Oh, so right. I was looking for okay. a substitute for the okay. week, so he picked on me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I thoroughly enjoyed it. Obviously, I, was, I wasn't very popular. Been, uh, you know, having done 13, 14 Ryder Cups, <laughs> I wasn't the most popular in the American team room, but there you go. But the Tiger, we had the attitude of, Balls to them lot, you're working for me. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> sure enough, when I walk in the golf course every morning looking at all the pins and all the young caddies wanted to get all the information off of them, and I would accept it. But um, <laughs> yeah. they won't look for going out and getting them themselves. So yeah. I've made myself welcome in the end. But yeah, it was, uh, he was uh, very, very impressive to watch. He's got it. They are, these geniuses are. Too, doesn't he? Tiger's got it. Sevy had it, if we call that electricity it, where. Just standing over the ball, you're waiting for something to happen. I think that's what you sort of talking about with the eight irons and the exhibition, so that every time that they pick up a club, anything could happen. You can't wait to see it. You don't get it from some of the fantastic players. I mean, Brooks Kepka plays the game amazingly, Billy, but I, mm. it's not electric, is it? Tiger's electric. Sevy was electric. Now, listen, I've got to tell you a little story that uh, 
the first day that I carried from at the President's Cup Tiger, we've walked from the clubhouse to the first tee, and you're walking through a gauntlet that's maybe two metres wide, 200 metres long as you went to the first tee, the 10 deep either side, and it was a circus. The screaming and shouting, the hysteria of the crowd, it would burst in my eardrums. I thought, I've got to get out of here. I've turned around, Tiger's got pen marks all over him, hats on sideways, shirts ripped his... Again, it's like the Beatles, like incredible. And we got to the first tee, and it was just so quiet. There was no spectators there, just me and him. And as he walked onto the tee, I said to him, I'll never forget saying to him, I said, Tiger, I've got to tell you something now. He says, what's that? I said, that's the first time in 15 years I've felt that aura about a golfer. It's only one other golfer in my time of caddying. I felt that, and that was Seve Ballesters. Mm. I'm going to tell you something now. I said, you might be a multimillionaire, you might be the best golfer that ever lives, and you might be have any woman in the world you want, but I won't swap your lives. And he looked straight through me and he went, thanks for that, Billy, at least somebody understands what I have to go through. Yeah. Got me attention straight away. And the lad, from being two years old, never had a life, because he can't go anywhere and do anything mm. he wants to do. And that's what mm. people don't see. I would not swap him lives. No. Tough life. Tough life. Yeah. All right, he's had everything, he's got everything, but there's a big sacrifice to have all that, and it's not worth it. It's a nice big prison in many ways, isn't it? Very comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. It? Yeah. It, is, it is a prison. A bit like us lot now. Yeah. <laughs> <Wrapped> <laughs> we're, all, we're all getting a taste of it, but perhaps without quite uh, quite so so many <laughs> so many comforts. Uh, let's finish up with some of your sort of favourite Sevy stories. Tony, if I give you the chance to tell one Sevy memory. It can be playing, it can be a dinner, it can be whatever you like. When you think of Sevy, you watched that Peter Kessler thing the other day. I saw that he linked on Twitter and you said, yeah. Yeah, had a brilliant. Bit of, bit of a tear in the eye. What's your, what's your enduring uh, memory of Sevy? Uh, my most enduring memory was probably uh, the Dutch Open at Hilversum, uh, one of my early years on tour. And I've been in the practice bunker for about an hour and a half, and here comes Sevy wandering down. He says, hey. Zimbabwe, you Zimbabwe. I said, yeah, I am Zimbabwe. He says, hey, I hear you're good in the sand. Hey, we have competition. So we get in the bunker and we've got a bucket of balls or two buckets of balls and we go at it for an hour. And I, we, you know, neither of us got more than one up. It was one up, all square, one down. And we go at it and we just keep going. And eventually um, we're all square with one ball to go. And by now we've got a gallery of players and caddies and everybody's having a great time. Me to go because I'd won the last point and I get up. And I play this bunker shot, and the minute it comes off the club, I know it's just perfect. And it gets up there, it's, it's a little left to right spin in the side of the hole, in. And I said, yes, yes, champion, champion, I'm the champion. He says, hey, 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 wait, wait, Zimbabwe. He says, hey, I know play yet, hey, you wait. And I swear to God, we've been at this for an hour. At the same pin, he comes out the bunker, walks up on the bunker, moves a couple of little grains of sand, a couple of stones, gets back in the bunker, and the look on his face Honestly, if it had been to win an Open Championship, it wouldn't have meant more. I mean, you've never, ever seen a man try so hard. And I thought, gee, this guy's taking this quite seriously. Sure enough, he gets up, plays the most exquisite bunker shot, zip, 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 follows me in. And he turns to me and says, okay, now you go home, eh? And that was, you know, just his, his attitude and the intensity and how much he hated the thought of losing. Uh, that was, that it made a massive impression on me as a, as a young pro out there. And, uh you know, that was the start of uh, a love affair because I loved the man like uh, like I've loved no other golfer. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not shy to say that. 
he was Europe's representative, wasn't he? All of the players yep. Uh, yep. knew that Seve was their man. If you had an argument with an American, you'd say, well, we'll put Seve up against whoever you've got. <laughs> <laughs> he can represent us. Clates, enduring memory of Seve. It doesn't have to be golf. Maybe it was a meeting or a discussion or a dinner or a lunch or you saw him pat a kid on the head one day or do something special. But when you think about Seve, what do you think about? Well, just the shots, really. But I was in a car with him once. We were driving we're back from the somewhere. And I asked him, I said, what's the best shot you've ever hit? And he said, the chip at Litham. I said, what about the shot across the wall in Switzerland or the shot in the Ryder Cup out of the bunker? Well, no, 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 sorry, I got that wrong. I, I, said, what, I said, what about the shot out of the bunker in the Ryder Cup in 1983? He said, no, he said, that was for the team. He said, for Litham, that was for me. But um, <laughs> there was a, Sam Torrance told me a funny story about Seve. They were on the rain somewhere. In the morning, and Sevy ripped out this shocking fart. He said it was just horrific how bad it was. <laughs> and, and Sam looked across at him and said, God, Sevy, you're right. He said, What do you think, Sam? I eat flowers. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, uh, he was just, he was, he was, he was the best. I mean, it was, it was funny. He was, but, but the, you know, the shots that will live with me forever were the, just the shots he hit, the shapes and the flights. And, yeah. Just the pure genius of who he was, really. Just to see it and then be able to do it. Billy, it's probably unfair to ask you for an enduring memory of Seve, but when someone mentions his name, what is the first thing that comes to mind for you? Uh, You know, I'll probably say the first time I went to the Masters with him. Um, US Masters, I'd never been to the Masters before, and we got there in 1991. He's outside the clubhouse and he went to play a practice round on his own. Nobody else, just seven, seven hours. My first time round, I go so seven hours. He hit probably 50 chips, 100 putts, every hole. And he played Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So we'd had five practice rounds before the tournament started. Anyway, he goes out in the tournament and the most amazing thing happened on the ninth hole of the first round of the Masters. Seve at the fairway. So we've gone down there. <laughs> Billy, how far we have? I said, he got 144 yards, mate. Okay, give me the pitching wedge. So the ninth, Augusta, the second shot's quite a bit uphill, so all you can see is the top of the flagstick. So the pin's on the front left, and it is literally a three, three-tiered marble staircase. So it's paramount. You get it on the right tier if you can. Okay, give me the pitching wedge. I said, no, Sevy. I said, it's 144 yards, but it's six yards uphill and it's into the wind. I said, it's playing 155. It's a 9-9. Ah, yes, Billy, you're, you're, you're a very good caddy. You're the best caddy I've ever had. You're very good. Give me the 9-9. So he pulls the 9-9 out. Here's his shot. It's all over the flag stick. He's taking paint off the flag. I'm waiting for it to land and the crowd are going to go ballistic. It lands on the green. Silence. Billy. You see the ball, eh? I said, it looked good to me, mate. Well, off he goes, running up the hill to see where it is. And I'm thinking, I know where that is. It's pitched on the back of the trap. Shot like a scalded rat up the back of the green. Now he's going to have an 80-foot put down a three-tier marble staircase. He's going to lose the head any minute. <laughs> As he gets to the top of the hill, his eyes get level with the green. Sure enough, the ball's off the back edge, pins front left, and he's got the horriblest put on earth. Well, there's about 4,000 people, 10 deep, all up the fairways, around the green and everything. He stands out at the top of the hill, and I can always see him looking at me with his arms out sideward, 
screaming at me. Billy, Billy, you son of my bitch. You son of my bitch, Billy! <laughs> Shouting at me, and I'm like, oh, my God, I want my mum. I'm nearly bursting into tears. Like, first ever master. <laughs> so I'm walking up this hill, and I've got all these loudmouth gobshites. Hey, nice club, get I'm like, ah, oh, piss off, will you? So I get up to the green. Now, Sevy rips the putter out the head. I know he just wants to slash the putter across my throat. My head will drop off and he's going to shit down my neck. That's all I can think. That's all he wants to do. He gives me, for such a handsome man, when he was cross, he turned into the ugliest, horribly scariest, evilest man you could ever wish to say. I couldn't even look at him. Then I start surveying this putt down these three tiers with 20 foot of break on it. Like, oh my God, get me out of here. Like, you know. Anyway, so he puts it straight across the green sideways. Now the ball's still on the top tier and it's stopped in the fringe. So he's now not 80 foot away, he's 85 foot away in three. And now I'm looking at the clubhouse saying, I better start running now. But just before I started running, I saw the ball starting to just edge back onto the green. You could see the dimples turning over. And the ball was running that slow. I could read the ball on the name. T-I-T. I thought, I know that already. And I thought, I was just about to run to the clubhouse and it caught the edge of the green, started going down this tier. Down the next delta scale, another 10 foot will break on it. Down the next plateau. Eventually, it rolled down there to about four inches. I'm like, oh my God, get out of jail three there. Like, you know. And as he tapped it in, now he's run up to the back of the green. He's turned back into the most handsome man with the biggest smile on his face. He's got his arm around me, patting me, and wagging his finger. Billy, Billy, it's not your fault, eh? Billy. <laughs> oh, no, no, Billy. You listen to me, eh? It's not your fault, eh? It's mine for listening to you! <laughs> Scared me to death. Only had another 63 holes to go. Yeah. But that, I always remember those days. Yeah, put the fear of God in you. Yeah, that might tell all of the Sevy story. All there right in one one shot, well, two shots and one hole. Uh, Billy. So you got the, oh, yeah. brilliant. Great times, great times. The full treatment. Well, you're all very lucky to have known him. Uh, I didn't even get to see Sevy play, so I was a bit of a late comer to the game. So I was good to see a little bit of him on TV, but not at his absolute best. Of course, YouTube is our friend in that way. But what a series of fantastic memories. I'm sure that you could all keep going forever, but we won't, uh, we won't keep doing that. We'll probably have a chat once we've uh, pressed the stop record button. But firstly to you, Billy Foster, thank you very much, mate. Fantastic of you to come along. Really been a joy to chat to you. Thanks very much for the memories. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Paul. Absolutely. Tony Johnston, uh, always terrific to chat to you, my friend. We're going to chat again next week, but we won't tell people what that's about just yet. But thank you, my friend, for taking part. been fantastic. My pleasure. And what a, what a joy to, to share an hour and a half with somebody who's discussing that wonderful man. Yeah, I felt like I was sitting at a bar between the three of you, just sitting and listening, which is <laughs> the best way to do it. And, Clates, this is all your fault, so you should be very proud of yourself, mate. You started the whole thing. So well done to you, and thanks for being with us, mate. Fantastic. Thanks, Rob. It was, it was good fun. As always, great to talk to you, Billy. I'll be over. And you, Mike. I'll I was going to be over this year, but it looks like next year now, so we must can't see on. the open happening this year, you know, because no, uh, no, no chance could, of that. They'd have to, with all the infrastructure, they'd have to start doing all that now, so I can't see them wasting all the money, so... I think 2020 is going to be a risk, isn't it? We're not going to have any major. We're not going to have any golf. It's uh, if they've moved the Olympics, I think that's a pretty, pretty sure sign that sport for this year is yeah. just about, uh, just about done. Not the best note to end on, but that's how we, uh, that's where we are at this time. That's episode 25 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back to do it all again next week with episode 26 here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. <laughs>